Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the 49ers Plus podcast, where we'll be discussing some potential quarterback help that might have arrived for the 49ers at the end of last season, what Mike McGlinchey, former right tackle, was told by the 49ers in 2021 and 2022, some silly Trey Lance speculation. The Niners did uh, trade for a kicker. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about cap space. And I'm going to rank the 17 signings, re-signings, and trades for new players that the 49ers made and then conclude today's podcast discussing the NCAA Sweet 16 Elite Eight. We now have a final four, and I'll give some initial thoughts on that as well. But like always, it starts with the Niners. Let's talk Niners. So there was some discussion. Actually, it was a radio interview um, last week where Ben Roethlisberger, former retired quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers, mentioned on talk radio that he was contacted by the 49ers the end of last year to see if he wanted to make a return. Now, he didn't specify exactly when, if it was when right after Jimmy got hurt, if it was a couple games after Brock was starting, if it was the end of the regular season leading into the playoffs. Time frame wasn't specified, but it intrigued Big Ben, you know, ever so slightly, but ultimately what he told whoever he was interviewing with was that, you know, I can't see myself coming out of retirement and playing for anyone other than the Steelers, which is totally fair. Now, how much... Roethlisberger would have helped down the stretch. Would there have been any sort of promise that he would have been battling with um, Brock Purdy for the starting job? Would he have been a better alternative than Josh Johnson? Probably, but again, it, it depends on how soon after Jimmy's injury Ben would have came in. By the time the NFC Championship game rolled around, Uh, Josh Johnson was with the team for about two months of learning the playbook. If Roethlisberger was given that amount of time to learn, he might have been, I think, more functional against the Eagles, and maybe he doesn't get knocked out against the Eagles since he's just a a bigger body than than Josh Johnson is. So the impact of, of what might have been, we'll never know. But I think it does provide a little bit more credence, even though it's a separate situation than when we heard a month or so ago that Phillip Rivers, former retired quarterback of the Chargers and most recently the Colts, proactively reached out to San Francisco to see if they needed quarterback help. Now, the, the two are not completely linked unless Roethlisberger reached out to Rivers saying, hey, San Francisco reached out to me. They're looking for some veteran help at quarterback. You might want to reach out. (coughs) Or Rivers could have done it completely on his own. Either way, San Francisco had, well, Roethlisberger was an option until he wasn't when he said no, but had an option in Phillip Rivers to add a veteran presence in that quarterback room after Jimmy got hurt and they passed on it. Much like a couple years ago, they passed on Tom Brady and decided to go with Jimmy Garoppolo in, I believe it was 2020 or 2021. I think it was 2020. And that, <coughs> excuse me, that year, a lot of people got hurt. Not to say if Tom was the quarterback 
that Bosa wouldn't have gotten hurt, that Ford wouldn't have gotten hurt again. It, the team was a complete mess. Sherman was hurt, so Tom Brady wouldn't have overcome all that. But another instance of Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch, at least with Rivers, eschewing the veteran quarterback and going for someone younger in Josh Johnson and, and Jimmy Garoppolo at the time. Now, <clears throat> right tackle Mike McGlinchey shared in an, in an interview that he was told last season, 2021, so two seasons ago, that he might be traded. And one of the things that I think the 49ers senior management is good at is being upfront and communicating with players. And I think to a certain extent, the media as well. Obviously, you can't be too honest with everybody, especially the media, and you want to hold some cards to your chest when it comes to free agency and the draft. But I think they are, even with Jimmy, when Jimmy came back, they they told Jimmy what the situation was going to be. He would be backing up Lance. And if a situation arose, he would obviously be the starter. Now that situation wound up being injury. And that what's that was what was built into Jimmy's contract, those incentives of about $250,000 a game starting after Trey Lance got hurt. But what Mike McGlinchey mentioned in an interview was, these are his words, after the 2021 season, they both told me, meaning Lynch and Shanahan, we may even look to move you at some point. We're projecting into the future and we think you're going to get priced out or meaning priced out of our, the 49ers budget. We want to get something in return. Totally fair. Now, <clears throat> that was after 2021. So before this past season, when they made the championship game against the Eagles, didn't wind up trading him. I guess they felt like there wasn't an, a better option on the team or an option that was close enough, but not a significant enough drop off that they would feel uncomfortable starting. So now once 2022 started this past season, here's what McGlinchey said. They were clear that barring something out of the ordinary, I wouldn't be back. It was a money thing. And they told me point blank, we'd love to have you back, but we can't stretch ourselves too thin. Now, obviously what McGlinchey got from Denver, what was it? Five years, 85 million, 17 million a year. There was no way, there was no way San Francisco, I think, was even going to pay 10 million, let alone 17. You have to make decisions if you're going to invest heavily a left tackle with Trent Williams. Even if you don't have that big ticket quarterback payment, which a lot of teams do, but San Francisco doesn't, they gave money to Eric Armstead. Nick Bosa is making money. He will be making more. Nick Bosa is more important than Mike McGlinchey. Fred Warner got paid. <clears throat> Who am I uh, forgetting on the offensive line? Debo got paid, of course. Kittle got his money. Ayuk might get paid. They have to think about that. McCaffrey is making $12 million a year. That will get restructured. Can't pay everybody. And the 49ers obviously put a premium on. They paid money for Charvarius Ward at cornerback. They're investing money in Nick Bosa. A left tackle one wide receiver, a middle linebacker, and a tight end in George Kittle, which is why now looking at safety, I think free safety is a, a pretty important position, especially when Jimmy Ward had versatility to play nickelback as well. But they went with a lower-priced option at safety, bringing back to Sean Gibson, 
and Isaiah Oliver from the Falcons as the nickelback cheaper as well. Both of them together are cheaper than what just Jimmy Ward got from the Texans. So you have to have a budget for everything in life, right? And for your house, for your car, for your kids, for your kids' college, for play money that you want to have. And obviously, right, I'm not telling you anything you don't know that a sports team is different. And as much as you would like to pay everyone what they're worth, you just can't. Unless it's a sport like baseball where you can if you're rich enough, but you just have, or basketball, I guess, but you just have to pay the salary tax. Now, from a trade that didn't happen to another trade that's not going to happen, although there are a lot of stupid rumors and discussion out there about Trey Lance possibly getting traded. Now, I could devote a whole podcast as to why this is stupid, none of which being or using the excuse that, well, he, you know, he's not ready. He's only started and finished three games in an, his NFL career. His record is one and two. He hasn't looked all that impressive. He's coming off of an injury. Or maybe San Francisco can recoup some of the draft capital they gave up for him by trading him. Irrelevant, illogical, and stupid. And let's tick them off. They will never recoup all the draft capital that they got for Trey Lance because he's damaged goods and they gave up a lot for someone who has yet to prove anything in the NFL. When he's been in, he hasn't looked fantastic and he's gotten injured. He's coming off of, I don't want to say a severe ankle injury, but it's a, it's a pretty good one. He he wasn't able to start working uh, with the team throwing until a couple weeks ago. And he'll be fine for OTAs and the regular season and mini camps and preseason and all that good stuff. But two reasons why people think he should be traded beyond the getting draft picks back and et cetera. Let's start with the stupid one or the stupider one. It's because the 49ers signed Sam Darnold. I've heard, well, read, but I've also listened to interviews where People are adamant and they're quoting sources, which is really just a disguise for them having a really poor, uninformed, and stupid take of their own that they're passing the buck. Or, of course, they want to make a hot take and get clicks and people to listen, saying that Kyle Shanahan really likes Sam Darnold, and that may be true. He likes Sam Darnold's skill set. And they didn't bring him in to be a third-string quarterback to hold the clipboard. Now, what is that saying? One, I'm not 100% sure. Two, you know, they brought him in $3.5 million, which could escalate up to 4 dollars if he plays, to hold a, pl- a clipboard initially. Certainly through training camp, Lance is going to be the starter. And when Brock Purdy gets healthy, unless his arm is dead and his elbow is dead after the surgery... Darnold will then be the number three. Why? Because at that point, Trey Lance, or even just today, Trey Lance will have significantly more time in the San Francisco offense and system, and so will Brock Purdy. Darnold will be playing catch-up. He is not... Now, people will say, well, Brock Purdy in his rookie year, yeah, he, he came in week 12, guys. That was a full OTA, 
full off-season, full training camp, and three months of the regular season to learn. Darnold is not going to be a month one quarterback unless Trey Lance gets hurt. Again, because I do think, if I had to put money on this now, I do think Brock Purdy starts on the physically unable to perform list, which would... I forget if it's four weeks or six weeks, but either way, he would be out for the first week of the season. So Sam Darnold is going to be your number two, and then maybe there's someone on the practice squad that's your de facto number three that gets called up for the first month of the season or is on the roster and then gets released and put back on the practice squad when Brock Purdy's healthy. I would love to think that Purdy is going to be healthy week one, maybe not to start, but to be there to see how Lance is going to perform, and if Lance struggles, a, a quick leash. Again, you got to have a quick leash when this roster is this talented to go to a player who, even though it's only been five regular season starts, six if you count coming in for Jimmy against Miami, and three postseason games, really two if you count when he was healthy and played, eight games of undefeated professional football. Got to count for something. It's a small sample size, yes, but it's a lot bigger. It's what? 250% bigger than Trey Lance's sample size of three games. And now the other reason why people say let's trade Lance is because they have Purdy. We ha- we found our quarterback. This is not me saying it. This is 49 fans. We found our quarterback. Oh yeah, and we got Darnold as a backup. He's an okay backup. But we have our starter. Let's get something for Lance while we can. Now why is this stupid? Because Brock Purdy is not healthy. And he won't be healthy until September. And he might not be healthy to play in a game until October. And because we all saw what happened in the NFC Championship game when the Niners got two quarterbacks bounced out of the game and had no effective quarterback for the last 28 minutes of the NFC Championship game. Oh, and before that, your number one quarterback got knocked out week two. And your backup quarterback, Jimmy, got knocked out week 11 or 12, whatever it was. Quarterback injuries are an issue. It's bad luck, but there's also a trend. Trey Lance was banged up in 2021. Jimmy was banged up with the shoulder and the thumb in 2021. Had the ankle issue in 2020. Blew out his ACL in 2018. Was healthy for 2019. That's great. This team is repeatedly bitten by the injury bug. And I'll keep saying it. The most important position in all of sports is quarterback. And if San Francisco is not still not sure what they have in Trey Lance, and let's be fair, I, they, they're not sure what they have from him in live game settings that matter. He's played three of them. We can't say a three-game three sample size is enough to tell what you have. As much as they see him in practice... And practice is controlled environment stuff. Yeah, you know, Fred Warner came out. He was slicing and dicing us up in practice. All right, so what? He could have had, you know, he might have had a great, he didn't have a great preseason. He had a terrible last preseason game last year against the Texans, which I don't know if that gave Shanahan even more pause and be thankful that he has had Jimmy on the roster. But in a perfect world where Trey's healthy, Purdy's healthy, and Darnold's healthy on the roster, those are your three quarterbacks on the 53-man roster, and probably your three quarterbacks that are active every week of the season, even if the NFL doesn't amend their rule. 
it doesn't happen often where two quarterbacks get knocked out. But when it happens, you are losing the game. You are done. And it happened. The only the only other worst place or situation it could have happened was the Super Bowl. It happened the game before that. So it is the second worst possible scenario where three quarterbacks got knocked out. Purdy is not going any. Well, Purdy's not going anywhere because he's injured. Dar, um, Darnold's not going anywhere because he's a third stringer. And Trey Lance is not going anywhere because they still invested so much in him and they want to see what they can do, what, what they can do with him. And if he's not the answer, by the way, they have a pretty good backup slash starter option in Purdy. And if he gets banged up, they have another quarterback that has starting experience in Sam Darnold and a skill set and athleticism that it sounds like Kyle Shanahan likes. If you're out there listening or reading to reading anything that says, well, you know, there's discussion that the Niners are going to trade Trey Lance. Don't listen to that person anymore. Don't dignify it with a click and read it. It's bullshit. It will never happen. It's poor journalism and it's stupidity at its highest point. Now, moving on to a 49er transaction that was made this past week. San Francisco traded for Carolina Panther kicker Zane Gonzalez. And the reason why they did that was the 49er, I'm sorry, the Panthers re-signed kicker Eddie Pinheiro, which made Gonzalez expendable. And the 49ers and Panthers are swapping late round draft picks in 2025. So three drafts from now. Zane Gonzalez will have about a $2 million cap hit for the 2023 season. When he comes to the 49ers, which is actually going to be the 23rd highest cap hit on the team. Not terrible. And again, if it was between signing Robbie Gold for between four or five million or another veteran or drafting a kicker for a little under a million, I'd rather go with someone who's had experience kicking in the NFL and Zane Gonzalez does have that. Now, he was on IR all last season with a quad injury. They never took him off. Carolina never took him off IR because Gonzalez, I'm sorry, because Eddie Pinheiro was kicking well. But the year before that, in 2021 with Carolina, he hit 91% of his field goals, was three for five, so 60% from 50 yards plus. And for his career, he's converting at a rate of 80.5%, 11 of 18 from 50 plus, which is 61%. I thought this was a good trade. The Niners gave up next to nothing. It's not even giving a pick. It's swapping a pick. And they have a kicker with NFL experience. Are they going to bring in competition for him? Yes. Might they spend a seventh round pick on a kicker? Maybe. Or maybe it's an undrafted free agent kicker or another kicker that never latched, a veteran kicker that never latched on a team that gets an unguaranteed contract or non-guaranteed. And there might be three kickers that are um, competing when we get to training camp. But for where they were to where they are, kicker was a need. It was an open spot on the roster. Happy with the Gonzalez trade. And that leaves San Francisco as of today with $5 million in cap space. Now that may not count the trade for Gonzalez, in which case it would bring them down to 3 million. But again, there are restructurings. We mentioned McCaffrey. They restructured uh, Debo's money to free up 9 million last week. They're not going to be making, I think, any other free agent signings or maybe just one before the draft because draft is cheap labor. 
and they don't have a pick in the first and second round. So the picks that they will make, assuming they don't trade up, will be even less expensive for the roster, which is what they need. And I think right now, they need about $3.5 million devoted to their draft class if they make all 11 picks, which they won't. So even with the Gonzalez, even if Gonzalez counts another $2 million, they can move some money to free up money for their draft class. And afterwards, if any other bigger restructures need to be made, again, I think McCaffrey will be made no matter what, they will be able to do that. So before we get into the NCAA tourney portion, the last thing I wanted to do 49er related was rank from 17 to number one, the 17 signings, re-signings, and trade that the 49ers made bring players into or onto their roster. So number 17, long snapper Tabor Pepper. Not that long snapper is a bad position. We saw a couple years ago before Pepper was on on the team, the 49ers had some issues at the long snapper position. Kyle Shanahan had a quick hook, uh, cut, I think, whoever the the long snapper was at the time, signed Pepper, and they re-signed him for a three-year deal. It's someone, obviously, who handles all field goals, all punts. I'm not saying it's an unimportant position, but compared to some of the other signings, Tabor Pepper, glad to have him back, comes in at 17. Number 16, defensive tackle T.Y. McGill, played well in spot duty. I think if he sticks on the roster, again, he's on the third line along with Kalia um, Davis, the rookie uh, that did not play last year. Could he get bumped off the roster? Yes, by a rookie, by maybe another veteran that they're brought in that they could potentially bring in. But if he sticks, I think he's a good rotational piece on that D-line. He may ultimately end up on the practice squad again, but right now 16th in terms of the signings. Number 15, uh, safety Miles Hartsfield from the Panthers. He rounds out the safety group now. I think he is the strong safety behind Talanoa Hufunga. Uh, Strong safety Tayshawn Gibson and George Oden will back him up. I still think the 49ers are going to draft a safety. So Hartfield's, Hartsfield's position may be tenuous at the moment. Although Steve Wilkes, former D coordinator and coach of the Panthers, spoke very highly of him, is the D coordinator now for Carolina. So I think he has a really good shot to stick, but could be pushed by a rookie. Number 14, defensive end Austin Bryant brought in from the Lions. You got to see the the 49ers philosophy at DN. They they are going young. So Bosa in his fifth year. Uh, Drake Jackson's in his second, and we'll get to another uh, defensive end a little bit later that they signed. Austin Bryant came out of that same draft class as Nick Bosa, so again, going into his fifth year, young, untapped potential on that defensive line, and inexpensive as well, which is important. Number 13, tight end Ross Dwelly. It's weird. Shanahan doesn't seem to love him, but he can't seem to shake him as well. Like He is someone not the fastest tight end in the world, has really good cans, Runs nice, nice crisp routes, can get open. They do go two tight end sets a lot, which means Charlie Warner is on the field with Kittle to have a bit stronger of a blocker. But if Dwelly can work on blocking, he could find himself on the field more this season. Now, do I think he could, he could and will be pushed by a rookie? Absolutely. Shanahan likes to have four tight ends on the roster. So a rookie will definitely be brought in and maybe a second rookie, an undrafted free agent, 
a veteran tight end later on. So Dwelly, while I like the skill set, is not guaranteed. He's on the roster right now, but not guaranteed a roster spot come first week of September. Number 12, linebacker Demetrius Flanagan Fowl. So have some may think he's a little bit low on the list. At best, he's a third linebacker. At worst, he's the fourth behind Oren Burks. They did sign him to a one-year deal. Didn't give him a ton of money, but they did give him about a million and a half guaranteed, which, again, he's been on the team. He knows the system, but they could have gotten cheaper and younger with a draft pick, which I still think they're going to make, and they might not have had to uh, devote that million-plus in guaranteed salary when, again, you're a team that's three to five million up against the cap right now. Every million dollars helps, or every million dollars matters. But a good player, has starting experience, good backup player, number 12 on the list. Number 11, Sam Darnold. This may be low. I know a lot of people out there don't have a high opinion of Sam Darnold, but he might be low on this list. But again, it's a it's a third string player, which if all goes well, he doesn't see the field at all. Again, if Brock Purdy is put on the pup list to start the season, then Darnold is your backup. Again, not, not a bad backup quarterback to have and a really good third string quarterback to have. So number 11, number 10, defensive tackle, Kevin Givens. And he's, he's just made plays since coming out as an unrestricted free agent from Penn state, signed him to a one-year deal. He's part of the second line defensive tackle rotation with Javon Kinlaw, Kinlaw's knee being bulky. And we're not sure how healthy Kinlaw is going to be. He may get, he will get significant snaps on the defensive line. Glad to see he's coming back. Number nine, kicker Zane Gonzalez. So right in the middle of that 17 uh, new players or, or player acquisitions, kicker's important. Robbie Gold was super important. He won a bunch of games for the 49ers during his time with the team. Not to say that Zane Gonzalez will do that or will be as accurate as Robbie, but when you're coming off of a, a player, yes, he had a quad injury in 2022, but in 2021 hitting 91% of his field goals definitely gives Kyle Shanahan and the special teams unit more confidence if he is indeed the kicker going into the season. Number eight, center guard John Feliciano signed from the Giants. Now, Jake Brendel was an important signing as well, but having a player behind him, a seasoned veteran with starting experience at center and both guard spots, very, very important. Now, San Francisco could carry as few as eight offensive linemen on the active roster. I think they will go nine, but in John Feliciano, you have a player who could step in for Jake Prendel at center if Prendel needs to miss time or any one of the guard spots. And important, again, remember, Spencer Buford was rotating with Daniel Brunskill at right guard basically the whole season. I think Buford has done enough to solidify that right guard spot, but he's also in the mix potentially for right tackle. So that gives, you know, Feliciano might be sliding into the right, right guard role. A lot to be hashed out on the offensive line. And again, this is another spot where they're going to address in the draft with one or two picks, but a solid backup with starting experience. Number seven, wide receiver Juwan Jennings. Now, he has not signed his exclusive rights free agent tender yet. He either signs that or does not play this season. I think he will sign. He probably is trying to work out a longer-term deal, maybe a two- or three-year deal with San Francisco. Jennings has had a nice career. Had a nice season last season. The number of third downs he converted or touchdowns was a, a high proportion of his catches. He is a big slot. 
Not the fastest, not the greatest hands, a very willing blocker. I think he will be back <clears throat> at least this year, unless San Francisco rescinds the tender because you know Jennings wants too much on a multi-year deal. It is a replaceable position, but right now I'm assuming he's going to be on the team, the number seven signing or re-signing. Number six, defensive end Cleland Farrell from the Raiders. Again, untapped potential, the number four overall pick in the draft where Nick Bosa came out as number two. He has a legitimate shot to start opposite Nick Bosa. Now, I think the 49ers want Drake Jackson to be that. But right now, I think he may be a little light for a starting defensive end. Maybe he does come in on the passing downs and Cleveland Farrell starts in early downs. But I think uh, uh, between the talent, the untapped potential, and the cost, just like Austin Bryant, solid signing for the 49ers. He comes in at number six. Number five, right tackle Colton McKivitz. After McGlinchey signed with the Broncos, right tackle was a gaping hole. McKivitz has experience starting at left tackle. Right tackle at guard. Outside of center, you could really slide him anywhere. And he's he's a scrapper. He's a fighter. I'm not sure how much of a drop-off there's going to be between McGlinchey and, and McKivitz if McKivitz is, in fact, the right tackle. But they got him for two years, and they got him for a whole lot less. And I don't think the drop-off in production is going to correlate to the difference in salary. So I think a good signing there. Number four, nickelback Isaiah Oliver. From the Falcons, so losing Jimmy Ward created a hole at slot back at nickelback. Isaiah Oliver recovering from an ACL tear in 2021, missed the first couple games in 2022, said that it was really the last month of the season last year where he got his legs back from under him. But in reading some articles, the Falcons defensive staff was really trying to patchwork together that secondary before Oliver came back in beginning of October, and he really solidified what the Falcons were trying to do from a secondary standpoint. They were still not a great secondary, and Isaiah Oliver is only, can only cover one person at a time or, or play zone, but got a two-year deal, about two and a half to three million per. I think he will fill the Jimmy Ward void. Number three, free safety to Sean Gibson. Came out and said he's only he would only think about coming back for the Niners and only because of the energy that Talano Hufunga brings. So penciled in as the starter right now, and great to have a veteran back there with Oliver as a younger player. Hufunga's only going to be in his third year. And George Odom has, you know, I think four or five years of experience, but still not a lot of starting experience at safety. So to have Gibson there, played really solid, played all 17 games, led the team in interceptions with five. Could still get pushed by a rookie. I really do think or hope that the 49ers address safety, whether it's a pure free safety or someone that can play either safety spot with one of their three third-round picks. Number two, center Jake Brendel. Stability on the line, important. I've said it before, Jake Brendel's first year starting at center was a good one. And he did get a four-year, $20 million deal from San Francisco, but it's really a two-year, $8 million deal but knowing that they will have the same center, I think is important. He makes the calls, right? Make the calls on the line, calls protections. Great that they have him back. And last, how could it not be anyone other than defensive tackle Javon Hargrave? Got a four-year, $84 million deal. Adds beef, adds pass rush to the middle of that 49er line, a defensive line. And will hopefully do 
what Javon Kinlaw could not do at defensive tackle, stay healthy, be a presence, be a force, stop the run, and push the pocket on passing down. So there are your 17 players ranked, and it concludes the 49ers section of the podcast, but I do want to touch on briefly the NCAA tournament. So these past couple days, we went through the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. It was the This is the first time in history that three first-time teams are in the Final Four. Miami, FAU, and San Diego State making their first trip to the dance. UConn, the old hat, is the fourth team that is there. It is also the first time that there were no number one seeds in the Elite Eight. And that's why we're going to go through some of the upsets. In the Sweet 16 games, there were eight games, and of them, four were upsets via seeding. So number three beat number two. uh, Number three, Gonzaga beat number two, UCLA in a thriller. Number nine, FAU beat number four, Tennessee. Number five, San Diego State beat number one, Alabama. And number five, Miami beat number one, Houston. Otherwise, where the seeds held, number four, UConn beat number eight, Arkansas. Number three, Kansas State over number seven, uh, Michigan State. Number two, Texas beat number three, Xavier. Number six, Creighton outlasted number 15, Princeton. Now, we got to the Elite Eight games. Three of the four games were upsets via seedings. So number four, UConn trounced number three, Gonzaga. Number nine, FAU beat number three, Kansas State. Number five, Miami beat number two, Texas. And number five, San Diego State. Or those were the three upsets. Number five, San Diego State beat number six, Creighton, in a close game. So some takeaways here when we got to the Elite Eight. It was a foul on San Diego State's guard, Darren Darian Trammell. I hate hearing people say you can't make that call at that point in the game. You make you call the foul whenever it is in the game, much like the Super Bowl hold James Bradbury on Juju Smith-Schuster. If, it'll, if it was a foul in the first quarter or the second quarter, or in this case, the first half or early second half of an Elite Eight game, you make the call. Trammell hit one of two free throws with 1.2 seconds left to get the victory over Creighton. Uh, for Miami, their win over Texas. Miami's Jordan Miller is only the second player in NCAA tournament history to be perfect. To go at least 20 for 20, he was 7 for 7 from the field, 13 for 13 from the free throw line. Second player uh, alongside Christian Leitner to be perfect since 1960. And Leitner's game was that classic 1992 overtime game against Kentucky where he caught that inbounds pass, length of the floor, turned at the free throw line and hit it in over hit the bucket in overtime to beat Kentucky. And something that I thought was a little bit ridiculous, the reaction, not the sentiment. Kansas State coach Jerome Tang went in after losing to FAU into the FAU locker room to congratulate the team. He spoke for about 30 to 40 seconds. Super classy move was filmed and was recorded. Everybody's got a a camera phone nowadays, obviously was put on social media. And there are people out there that have issues with it saying he's going too far with sportsmanship. You don't have to do that. And I, yes, he doesn't have to do that. That has to be the whole, one of the hardest things to do after your team lost speaking to your team and then going to speak to the other team about how well they played. And I've watched it and I've listened to it. He sounds genuine. Jerome Tang sounds like a really good guy. Are we, are we saying that this should be mandatory after teams lose? No, but we shouldn't criticize someone 
for being a good dude, for showing maybe more sportsmanship than is needed, but people are taking shots at him. This is why, like, I take exception to it because I take exception to if I hold a door for someone, they don't say thank you. If I get on a Zoom call for work and say, uh, hey there, so-and-so, how you doing? Good. And they don't ask back. Or how was your weekend? And they'll say what they did for the weekend and not ask back. I had a whole issue with a previous company where I, not that I shut down, but I was no longer going to be the one that asked how they're doing. Do you want to go for lunch? How was your weekend? It wasn't being reciprocated. Now, these weren't evil people, and I don't consider myself Captain Manners, but I hate when people look for something like this to complain about. To me, it comes back to, you know, is that progressive commercial insurance commercial where someone is, um, you know, that guy, that elderly guy with the mustache is saying, you know, had someone leave a voicemail and say, what, what did he do different? And people are saying, oh, he didn't leave his name. He didn't leave his number. You know, how do they know when to call him back? And the whole end result was no, a text would have done. Are we really at that point as a society where we can't pick up the phone and call people? Are our lives really that busy that the only time we can communicate is via text? Now I'm guilty of this too. I, I text people, but they're usually a quick hit stuff. If I want to talk to people or I haven't talked to them in a while and want to have a conversation about something, I'll pick up the phone. But a lot of people don't do, the vast majority of people don't do that. There's a commercial out there which had to have been written by a millennial saying, oh, you don't need to call, just text people. Is this where we are in a society? Are we actually tracking to become, like in the animated movie Wally, those fat, obese, overweight people with low bone density that are just floating around on inflatable chairs in a spaceship? attached to their screen all day. Zero actual human interaction. Texting is not human interaction, folks. It's not. Messaging people on Facebook Messenger, on Instagrams, that's not human interaction. It's actually seeing someone or calling. And the fact that, and I got on a soapbox because it aggravates the shit out of me, the fact that this coach, Jerome Tang of KSU, went for the, went above and beyond the human interaction aspect and showed a lot of class and he's, he's being dinged for it, lot of shitty people out there or a lot of people out there with their priorities in the, in the wrong spot. Now takeaways from say the elite eight and the final four, like now I didn't watch every minute of every game, but I watched enough and went back to watch some highlights. UConn has been dominant. You know, every game they've won by more than 15 points. They are, they're kicking ass. They're going to be a tough team to be. And they were a number four seed, which means they were, you know, the 16th, 18th best team in the nation. But they're playing like the best team right now. Going to be hard to beat. Miami is a scrappy and athletic team. They came back from 13 down against Texas in the second half without hitting any threes. And the fact that that's a stat, you know, a, th- a three is great. It's worth one more point than a two. And I was listening to something. Um, I was running a quick errand yesterday. Miami was shooting 61% from the field early in the second half, in total, without hitting threes. And the commentator was saying, well, if you just hit a couple threes at that rate, you're not hitting threes at a 61% clip. Remember, that 61% is dunks, they're layups, they're eight-foot jumpers, they're easy things. But an athletic team, an explosive team, they've been fun to watch. FAU has the most wins in the tournament. They came in with 35. And even though they didn't play in a great conference, they've shown... 
in the regular season and in the tournament that they can win any type of game. They can win a low-scoring game, a high-scoring game, a close game. They don't shrink from the moment. And as a nine seed, it's very impressive. And as a number five, San Diego State, the intensity has been ratcheted up for them. They played a number 12, then they played a number 13, won those first two round games, then beat the number one overall seed by seven, then came back and beat a very game Creighton team, the number six seed by one. So again, another team, they're a long team, they're an athletic team. They're a team that we've been waiting to make that push, much like Houston, you know, the past five or seven years, San Diego State has been relevant, just couldn't, and I've gotten high seeds, but they could never just, they could never push through. They push through and they push through Alabama and Creighton to get there. So the final four, first game, number nine, FAU versus number five, San Diego State. That will be on Saturday. Uh, also on Saturday, number five, Miami versus number four, UConn, the national championship will be a week from today on Monday. And a lot of people out there are saying, well, where is this going to be compelling? There's no Duke, there's no Kentucky, there's no Carolina didn't even make the tournament. UConn's really the only blue blood. There are no big names in this tournament, but that's the beauty of the tournament, right? That's the beauty of putting 68 teams in a one-and-done scenario. Anybody can win any given game. That's what makes football, you know, the NFL playoffs so intriguing. Hockey, basketball, Baseball, generally speaking, when you're going to either five, a best of five or a best of seven for sure, the better team will win across seven games, more than likely. The majority of the time, the better team will win longer series. When it's a one and done, anything can happen. Anybody could have a good night. Anybody could have a bad night. And I don't think there's any bad permutation of a final. Whoever wins between FAU and, and San Diego State, we're going to either see an FAU team or a San Diego State team that we've never seen in a final before. FAU is a five seed, San Diego, a nine, San Diego State's a five. If Miami wins, you're going to have a Miami, well, you could have an all-Florida final, FAU and Miami. Or you could have a nice warm weather final, San Diego State and Miami, and just two contrasting styles of basketball. And if UConn's in it, then you have the blue blood. Then you have the team that has been the most dominant team in the tournament, the team that's in there that if people want to, they can root against. An FAU against UConn, you know, a David versus a Goliath matchup. San Diego State would still be an underdog, even though they're a five seed and UConn's a four. UConn is going to be the team. They're the team with the history, even though they haven't won it since I think, is it 2015, 2016 or, or longer? It's been, it's been a while. They're still the name. So I think there's some, some great drama, some really interesting and fun basketball that's coming uh, towards us on Saturday for the Final Four and on Monday as well. So this concludes the 49ers and NCAA tournament section for the podcast. For those of you that are listening, uh, I appreciate it. I hope you come back on Thursday. The plus section is still fluid, but... There's discussion that the NFL might be considering flexing the last four Thursday night games of the season. I have some strong feelings about that. Star, The next Star Wars movie might be in limbo again because Star Wars, Lucasfilm, and Kathleen Kennedy cannot get their shit together. I'm going to be reviewing um, a graphic novel series and a TV series, a streaming series. Again, it is just TBD. And of course, anything else that is interesting along the way between now and Thursday we will discuss. So I hope you, again, enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Have a great next couple of days. And we will talk again on Thursday. Take care.